Welcome everyone to What's Happening, a weekly podcast bringing you Bitcoin mining and mining related content. I'm your host, Cassie Clifton, and thanks for joining me today. Before we dive into today's episode, I'm going to quickly plug the upcoming Bitcoin 2020 event in San Francisco, March 27th and 28th. Right now, it's positioned to be the largest Bitcoin event in the world. Almost a thousand tickets have already been sold, and there's an anticipated 4,000 Bitcoiners convening an SF for this event. I can't speak highly enough about last year's event. In addition to some really high quality speakers like Edward Snowden, there was also a ton to do outside of just listening to sessions, like an all-day rooftop beer garden and arcade and numerous satellite events. So if you're not already going, I really, really suggest that you add this one to your event list. Um, if you haven't bought a ticket yet, you can use my discount code for 20% off at checkout. It's CAS20, that's all caps, C-A-S-S-2-0. Um, and you can learn more about Bitcoin 2020 by clicking the link in the episode description. Today, I have with me Chris Ben Dixon, who is the head of research at CoinShares. Chris publishes a biannual report on Bitcoin mining, covering things like the trends in mining industry, average creation costs, electricity consumption, and energy sources. Uh, the most recent report was actually published just recently. I believe it was like December 9th. Um, I highly, highly encourage you to give it a read. Uh, I'm sure you've seen some of the miscellaneous op-eds titled something along the lines of Bitcoin predicted to be the nail in the coffin of climate change or Bitcoin will burn the planet down. Um, Chris has actually been one of the pioneers in helping to dispel a lot of those misconceptions surrounding Bitcoin's energy use. Uh, we briefly touched on this today. We also dive into some other interesting findings in his most recent report, like the 90% increase in hash rate over the last six months, 70% of which was in China, minor capitulation, differentiating all-in ROI break-even from cash flow break-even level, and what those mean for miners, as well as efficiencies and innovation in hardware. We also get into some fun topics like grid balancing as a use case for old mining hardware, the influence of misconceptions on Bitcoin mining on regulatory decisions, alternative financing methods for projects, and the difficulties of bringing debt into the space, the impact of depreciation schedules on the sustainability of mining operations, and the incentives for manufacturing operations to exist in North America. So I hope you enjoyed today's episode, and let's go ahead and get into it. Well, uh, Chris, thanks so much for joining me today. I just wanted to say thank you um, to you and all of your colleagues at CoinShares for all of the work you do. I first saw your work, I believe it was at the Fidelity Mining Summit in Boston, but that was kind of like the first exposure I had to a uh, like major research publication in this space. Um, I was really, really excited to see everything that you've been doing, especially around energy consumption. I know there's tons of misconceptions uh, in that area. So we're really, really fortunate to have uh, such a talented team of researchers uh, publicly making this information available. Before we dive into the most recent report um, that you released last week, I'd love to learn a little bit more about like your background and how you found CoinShares kind of and then like what got you in the space. My uh, my educational background is in um, the the biosciences. I'm a I'm a biochemist and a biophysicist by training. Uh, but I've never um, I've never really worked in that space as soon as i got out of school i i went straight into finance here in london and um that's actually right around the time that i got introduced to bitcoin uh it was in 2013 had a friend who was just absolutely crazy about it and um wouldn't stop talking about it even though i repeatedly told him this was the worst idea he'd ever (laughs) shown me (laughs) we all have those friends yeah yeah i know we're not thankful for them but yeah exactly (laughs) exactly (laughs) hindsight i'm like man you know another one of I made a career out of that dude (laughs) (laughs) seriously and I mean the the, this guy has spectacular foresight I just gotta admit it but you know it's 
it, I, I guess it's one of those things where, you know, most ideas are crap, but if you have enough of them, some of them are just going to be absolute gold. So, you know, just got to be appreciative for, uh, for, for being a person that this type of stuff is shared with, you know? Absolutely. My, um, so my CEO actually got into the space because he like heard about it. He thought that it was like such a dumb idea. And then he kept trying to find ways to prove that it wouldn't work. And like when he eventually couldn't find a way to be like, (laughs) this is why it's not going to work. He was like, Oh shit, I really have something here. Like this, this is really (laughs) cool. I'm super pumped about this. Uh, Just like completely 180 on his opinions there. That's awesome. I have I mean, it makes sense, right? Especially right. if you if you're of those types who are you know slightly obsessive or you know perfectionist of leaning, and you just want to go in and, and show it to these people, and it actually just cannot be dismissed. <laughs> pretty pretty epic, uh, pretty epic technology, I gotta say. I mean, yeah. we, when I first heard about it, we we almost did an office sweepstakes just really gambling thing yeah it was in the it was in the um the spring bull run of 2013 it went from like i want to say like 30 to 260 except that it happened in like three days and then it dropped down to you know 80 or something two days after so we totally missed it based on timing you know we 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 were gonna set up like a mount gox account we're gonna wire money to some shady overseas bank is where where was it, that that you were working then it was at a finance boutique here in okay. london well and what so, were you doing for them uh analysis i was just you know, okay gotcha. entry level analyst building presentations and you know doing all the grunt work <laughs> i i understand that um yeah. was that um was that post did you have an mba no okay gotcha no. I got because I know oftentimes like a lot of, you know, like hard sciences will be hired into like finance or like management consulting firms. Um, but I was just curious if like you went for the MBA first and then, and went over there, but. No, I, I didn't. I thought about it. I, I mean, I still think about it, but. Yeah, I, I understand that. But it's also like the opportunity cost of like shilling out that kind of money in this time in Bitcoin right now to go back to school just doesn't seem, at least in, in my opinion, like it's the, uh, the best time to to capitalize on the opportunity so i know it just the opportunity cost of not being able or having to substitute the reading that i'm constantly doing in the bitcoin space with other reading it just probably would make me fall off the, the boat you know there's just right. too much information to be consumed constantly that if if i was to do anything other i feel like i'd be left behind with you know like three yeah. weeks it's like I'm gonna go to law school, but I also think I want to start a research firm while I'm in law school. Yeah. So yeah, <laughs> just tons of reading. Um, yeah, it'd be extremely difficult. Um, I know. I'm, I'm curious to know: Have you ever um, mined yourself, or like, what was it specific? Like, was there anything in particular that kind of got you interested in uh, like Bitcoin mining research when you joined CoinShares? Well, I mean, my sort of uh, Bitcoin click moment uh, was when I understood the. Um, the difficulty adjustment algorithm. That was when Bitcoin really, really made sense to me. When I, when I really, because at at first I I looked into, you know, you know, how are these things created? And I was like, okay, they're, uh, you know, miners hash. And and I was like, well, you know, but what if more and more miners start hashing, you know, want to just create an unlimited amount. And then the difficulty algorithm was in there and I, you know, just hit me like a ton of bricks. Um, so I'd always been interested in it. 
Um, and, you know, after, um, after I, um, uh, I finished at, uh, my, my first like Mayfair gig, I, uh, worked for, um, for an energy shipping brokerage that sat on the, the capital services and LNG desk. So I got pretty, um, deep into the energy industry in general, and particularly the, the, the oil and gas industry and renewables was, was also a, a really big theme at the time. So, I mean, mining has been, it's just been super fascinating. I've never mined myself, but I, uh, I was an early investor in, uh, I don't even know what you would call it. It's almost like a proper IPO. Uh, it's called ASIC Miner, and it was uh, it was run by this crazy Chinese person called Fried Cat, who <laughs> or may have exit scammed later with like forty thousand coins. Some of it, some of it are mine. <laughs> well, that's unfortunate, Where, but valuable experience nonetheless. I'm sure. Right, and then uh, th- there were these um, there were these um, uh, hash like synthetic hash rate derivatives that you could trade. So I I I've always how long just, ago was that? That's like super interesting. Ago. I didn't realize that derivatives exist like for hash rate derivatives existed. You know, several years back. Yeah, I, I mean they weren't very good, uh, and they weren't very <laughs> the much. The concept volume. was there. <laughs> the concept was totally there, and the exchange was super shady. And I mean, like most exchanges in the day, yeah. Yeah, ex- you know, but this was like back in the day shady. It was shady for, you know, the Gox era. <laughs> so, right, yeah. Uh-huh. So, um, yeah, so, so many you know, of us have, have, fallen, uh, have fallen into that pitfall there. Yeah, exactly, right? So I'd always been super interested in it. And um, it, it's something that I've always followed very closely because it, I, I find it to be under, if not underappreciated, then definitely underreported. And I don't think enough people spend enough time. It, it's one of the hard assurances of the system. And I don't think enough people spend enough time um, keeping up to speed with what's going on. And, you know, we know that the, uh, the systemic weaknesses that are the largest for the system um, come from the mining space. We all know that the system doesn't work very well under 51% attack, for example. So just this is just it, in, in the beginning is is pretty selfish too. It's just, you know, my own interest in the space is sort of predicated on me feeling good about the decentralization and making sure that everything is uh, is, is going as as well as it should. Right. So so when when I came in, you know, we started doing this research report on Bitcoin and um one of the things we were looking into is like the concept of network health and you know you could look at the hash rate but I was never quite happy with that you know it's just not enough so uh, I started looking around for for research on the mining network and there just really wasn't that much yeah it wasn't that much out there at all and and the stuff that you would hear would always just be this like climate FUD you know It'd be like, oh, you know, all miners are in China and, and all Chinese miners mine on coal. And, and therefore, this is just a ridiculous uh, climate nightmare. So <clears throat> we, we sort of had to get to the bottom of it ourselves because we couldn't find any other good information on it. So it's just one of those things where, you know, if, if you want something, you just got to do it. No, absolutely. Um, I'd be curious to know, and that sounds like it's a, that's a pretty big challenge to, to combat just the lack of information in the space and like kind of being the, 
like on the pioneering side of like the fact gathering and data gathering, but like, what would you say have been some of the greatest challenges in the research that you're doing? Just the fact that it's so underground Mm -hmm. and it's all private and people are very secretive and particularly in China, people have traditionally been extremely secretive and for good reason too. You know, there's been many years of pretty unfavorable treatment from uh, governments, both uh, local and national. So very few miners have been interested in in sharing anything about themselves, um, probably for fear of being found out. You know, it's been a a legal gray area in, in China for many years. And a lot of these miners are sort of skirting around the rules by uh, presenting themselves just as like a generic data center. And it's very relationship driven on the ground. Like you've got to know the right people. You got to make sure that. I feel like much of China is very relationship driven in general too. Yeah, very much. Yes. And, you know, I, I've, seen, uh, I've seen mining centers in China where there's literally just giant walls built around the entire facility such that no one on ground level can actually see in and see what's behind there. So you, you wouldn't know what's in there. Hmm. It's uh, some extra infrastructure costs there. Yeah, it, exactly. So, you know, we don't have that hard of a time um, finding information in the West. The... It's always a challenge with the with the you know the smaller and the mid scale miners. You know, it's just a um, a problem. Do you think, do you think no, some no. of the the recent poli- policy decisions in China um, will kind of help, uh, at least in some ways, promote transparency on mining in China? Yeah, I I think so, and I think that might be what they're after too. And um, then you can speculate on you know what, what why do they want that. <laughs> That's right. Knowledge is power the, to them. <laughs> exactly. No, right. not, Knowledge not, is not, how people use their money and you see that in them shutting down like cash payments in, in certain regions and testing that out to going like all digital. We pay Alipay. Yeah. I mean, one. China, China is pretty much all, uh, I, I didn't even touch cash when I was there. Uh, really? Back. Yeah. I did the, my, um, my taxi drivers did not take cash when I was in, uh, in Chengdu. Really? Mm-mm. Or I mean, so they only took cash. They didn't take any cards or anything like that. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. yeah. I I I didn't even hold uh, any paper currency my entire time there. <laughs> yeah. I realized though that um, they don't really use credit cards either, and so that was kind of the problem that I would have run into if I had not gotten cash out of the ATM at the airport. Um, yeah. So I was I had gone to a couple of different like uh, restaurants, and they they didn't take cards. So. Yeah, I, I definitely saw that as an issue. There's a couple of times where I just, you know, you're you're at like a little, you know, corner store or whatnot, and you just can't get anything. Right. You're like, I just need water. It's like, yeah, it's like yeah, we got pay only. I was like, I don't have that. Right. <laughs> yeah. I don't want it. So sorry. <laughs> yeah. Um. So of uh, all of these uh, misconceptions in the space. I would be curious to know if how you've seen them influence policy decisions. I know like outside, maybe outside of China. An absolutely uh, exemplary case here is Norway, which, you know, it angers me more than anything. Almost. I'm sure. Yeah, your homeland. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, it, it's so frustrating. So what, basically what happened there is that um, there's, there's high taxes on everything in Norway. Um, and the way the government views subsidies sometimes is uh, a subsidy can be uh, the, the absence of a tax. <laughs> which, Interesting. 
I mean, it's, it's yeah, let's just use that word. And uh, <laughs> so what happens if you're, uh, if you're an industrial user of electricity is that you get, um, you get big discounts on the electricity tax, the consumption tax. And so, for example, if you're, uh, if you're uh, an aluminum smelter or, you know, and any type of, you know, metallurgic industry or, or anything that is one just of the like, most energy intensive globally. Right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, you know, in fact, one of the ways that Norway exports its energy is through uh, aluminum. Iceland does the same. It's, it's very clever. Yeah, it's a very clever That's way that. of doing it because it's, it's an energy sink, right? It's proof of work in, in a different way. What is it? Uh, 1500. I can't remember if it's kilowatt or megawatt to make like a ton of aluminum. Probably megawatt for a ton. Probably. Yeah. Probably. So it's, it's, it's a good way of exporting your energy through something that can actually be shipped. What basically what happened is that data centers are one of the, uh, one of the industrial class that are exempt from this tax. And uh, what the government decided was that all data centers should be exempt from this tax, except cryptocurrency miners. It's, it's almost unbelievably specific and in my opinion, not very smart. And some of the, uh, some of the reasoning for this that was actually quoted on the parliament floor was blog posts about the climate impact of Bitcoin, which is just, you can't even make that up. Like that is just unbelievably sloppy for, uh, like a legislative body. I will say I find it so odd in the like non-endemic space that the, the resources and the research that is like most widely trusted is not within the space. Like it's not being produced by a Bitcoin or cryptocurrency like company themselves. that is like established themselves as a research institution. It's being Mm -hmm. produced by like the New York times or a blog post, or maybe like academic researchers who uh, like, have really no stake in this space whatsoever, um, which I, I know, think is really detrimental to the space. And, and the worst part is that these sort of ground sources, um, be they blog posts or whatnot, ha- have, they've snuck into the academic literature and become cited sources within the academic literature. And then that, those academic papers are then again cited. And then you have this like, cycle of papers that are built on quicksand right like when did wikipedia become an acceptable citation <laughs> right well when did someone's blog post become yeah in the same vein it, anyone right? could make that anyone could contribute to a blog post yeah at least wikipedia is generally pretty solid this is but, true yeah but like blog posts you know that is it's it's a little it's a little out there so because of that and because of these errors uh, and because of lack of good research, um, miners are now being prejudiced pretty heavily by the government uh, in Norway. And, and it's a great shame because Norway is 100% renewables driven. We have an incredible amount of capacity for further hydro development. I mean, the whole country is mountain and rain. So but there's no way of exporting it. So the, the way it's been exported so far is through aluminum. Uh, we have some, con- you know, obviously grid connections to our neighbors. And then that, you know, kind of trickles down all the way to Europe. There's some cables being laid so forth and so on. But the country itself is incredibly long. So even just within the country, you have to transport electricity right. sometimes thousands of kilometers. And that transmission so, is incredibly inefficient when you're getting to that kind of distance. 
Exactly. So you essentially just end up losing a bunch of it to heat. So it doesn't, it's not economical. So here's a way that Norway could uh, monetize its excess energy resources immediately. And they're, <laughs> they're doing the opposite. <laughs> it's infuriating. So, so this is, this is the prime example, in, in my opinion, of, of what can happen in, in the worst case when regulators or legislators are at the same time, probably a little biased going into it, and then either ignorant uh, based on willful ignorance or just pure old lack of knowledge ignorance. Right. And then they yeah. reinforce their biases with, uh, you know, information that's supplied by someone who has no stake experience or knowledge of the space and only like of the like high level energy use and consumption. So. Yeah, and in certain cases might be, you know, predisposed against the network too, and and, and those biases are not even that well hidden on their websites. So it's um it's challenging. challenging. Yeah, it's very challenging. So, but I, I I think we're getting somewhere now, though. I mean, we we see this uh, we see this research now spreading. Uh, it's it's creeping its way into academia as well. It was one of the main sources by a study that came out of uh, a Danish university a couple months back uh, that used our data to sort of reinforce our conclusions that the climate impact is probably a lot less than what these other academic articles would have you believe and that we should you know take a step back and think about this a little more clearly before we go ahead and, and do drastic things do you does Cornshares ever reach out to like uh, regulators or legislators um, or like even some of the publications that are uh, publishing these misconceptions we haven't reached out to any publications yet. It, it it's a it's a bit of a hard position for us too, because at the end of the day, you know, we're a for profit company. It's it's going to be hard for us to claim impartiality. So, I mean, what what we would prefer is if people just look at our work and and look at our sources, and if if they find that to be um, strong enough for for their own work, then just build upon it. Yeah, I think um, Canada's like uh, legislative decisions to most recently around mining um, will be really good for the industry at large, but also like kind of serve as a guideline for miners to have a better understanding of like what actions that they can take to reinforce like more favorable legislative decisions, uh, just mm. in the sense of like if they're able to provide like actual benefit, like tangible benefits to the like larger economic system of the country, they're probably yeah. far more likely to uh, receive favorable legislation. So, yeah, I mean, it's just, it's such a hard issue because it's not a very manpower demanding industry. And, and a lot of things that governments look at when they want to craft, uh, you know, if not favorable, then at least not disfavorable legislation is, you know, how many jobs are you creating or, you know, what kind of taxes are you paying um, and where does the value accrue? So it, it's a little bit, it's a little bit difficult in this case, especially since, mo you know, a lot of the hardware is going to be purchased abroad because we don't have any native ASIC industries in the West. They're all in China or in, um, or in Korea. So it's, it, that's where the, the real jobs are probably. Um, you don't really need that many people to run a, a mining facility. That's true. Yeah. I mean, I guess really it'd be like temporary roles and on the contracting side for building out the infrastructure. 
Um, yeah, I mean, the, the, there's obviously some some right, stuff you for need sure, but not electricians like and yeah, like yeah, you need electricians and maintainers and stuff, and it's all a, a, a thing of scale. But if you look at it in terms of like how many jobs are you producing like per megawatt consumed, it's it's probably one of the lowest around. Is there? Do you think that like regu- the that we might see expansion in the near future for like manufacturing in North America? Well, there are a couple of companies that have stated goals to um, sort of create uh, a native uh, ASIC industry in the United States from the ground up. So I really hope so. It, it would be great. And if everything everything that is needed is already there. It's, it's just a matter of um, intellectual property, of designing good ASICs and finding a, a, a place where you can assemble these things cost effectively, which should definitely... Uh, exist in North America. And then just the the reduction in shipping time alone should make that's this what I was pretty, thinking too, yeah. yeah it, it should make it pretty uh pretty competitive. I yeah, mean, absolutely. In like the like two and a half months. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And and you know it's it's just good to have um decentralization have, at that level. Correct. If there was ever to be coordinated um coordinated campaigns against Bitcoin mining taken by the Chinese government, then you'd, you'd want there to be alternatives somewhere else. And it's very positive, actually, that companies like Canaan have IPO'd in the United States now, meaning that the intellectual property for their ASIC designs are spread out among at least some American investors with legal protection for that. So positive yeah. signs, baby steps, yeah. though. But That's true. Um, so I'm overall curious. looking good. <laughs> yeah, slowly but surely things are things mm-hmm. are, are looking like there's yeah, a very um very strong path forward. One of the things that I uh I thought was most uh, notable in the uh, December 2019 report that you published was that 65% of the hash rate is now in China. Um mm-hmm. and I thought that was super interesting like even as mining is gaining significant traction in like North America and Central Asia and, and Norway and Iran. Um, and some of these other air areas. I'd be curious to know why, aside from on the manufacturing side and having that like really easy access, and, and I know that you also mentioned like VIPs who might have you know deals set up with uh, those manufacturers to have like the first batch of the equipment that's manufactured. Um, mm-hmm. I'd be curious to know what you like, how you think that that will look in the coming months. Like, do you think that we're kind of primed for further geographically distributing the hash the hash power in the coming months, or? Yeah, I, I think it'll uh, I think it'll dissipate out to the rest of the world, um, and it's it, it's a few things, right? I mean, among all of the things you mentioned, uh, I think play into it, and then there's shipping time too. Mm-hmm. So, I think as uh, as things progress now, we're we're going to see uh, the the distribution of hash rate, um, especially if the new gear just spread more and more into Western hands. So. I th- I think and hope as well that this is temporary, and I think this is probably something that you're going to see um, if if manufacturing if the manufacturing base remains in China, then I think you're probably going to see an effect like this every time there's an entirely new generation of hardware coming in, um, and there's a, a mass change out of. Uh, of uh, hashing equipment across the network. It's just going to fall to the people closest to the production centers first. It's, it's natural. Right. 
No, certainly. Um, and I think we see that in a lot of industries as well. For sure. I was also curious to know, uh, one of the like kind of excerpts that I pulled from the, um, from the report was that the lion's share of the newly deployed hardware has been predominantly installed in China. I know that there's still a lot of like existing S9s on the market as well, but and this might not be something that you've been able to kind of uh, project, but do you have an idea of like what the ratio of like new hardware to S9 slash like older equipment is in China? No, it's the short answer <laughs> to that. <laughs> and, and that's also not something that we've tried to calculate. We might be able to find that out, but... Uh, we haven't actually tried. We suspect that a bunch of uh, the S9 generation gear that was in China has uh, made its way to more speculative jurisdictions, such as Iran, a bunch of it we think has gone to Kazakhstan. We're, we're, we're also wondering if this might be one of the reasons why we haven't observed any uh, migrations of miners inside of China this year. Uh, because the gear that you would traditionally move around might have already gone abroad uh, on on these like wild goose chases for that you know mythical subsent electricity. So we we know that hundreds of thousands of units have made its way into Iran, um, and tens of thousands have been confiscated either at the border or by uh, by the governments after they've started mining. So I, I think I mean. But also at, at the same time, I mean, I've, I've seen like Avalon 7 series still running in China. There's definitely places in China where you can run the previous generation hardware profitably. Maybe not now in the dry season. I don't know. I was there in the wet season. I think it's probably drying out more and more, um, it's, especially as we run up to the halving and, and price keeps um price keeps dropping depending on where you sit on the cost curve your s9s are are probably going to get booted like relatively soon see what happens with them um there's a lot of potential use cases um that that you can have for them one of the most interesting uh stuff that i've heard is is using them for grid balancing so interesting I would love to hear like your thoughts on that because I have long been curious, like what happens to old mining hardware that's no longer like efficient enough to make sense. Like it wouldn't be profitable to mine. Um, But I I didn't know if it was like sitting in land landfills or like storage facilities or, um, or like what some like prospects would be for that. Yeah. I mean, and I I feel like this cycle is going to be the, the first proper big proof of, of that, if you will. Certainly. Yeah. Before, I mean, the, the S9 came out in, what, 2016? It, it just feels like so long ago. And whatever gear uh, existed before then, you know, it wasn't of the same magnitude as now. Like, probably something like two and a half to three million S9s produced, um, which is a lot. So, And didn't you estimate what, like 1.7 would st- are still operational? Mm-hmm. So 1.7 million, yeah, that's what I was thinking. And and you know it, it's got a it's got a uh, um, a non-trivial breakage rate too, so at at some point these things just don't work anymore, and and obviously that accelerates as they get older and and depending on the conditions know, and whether or not they like had they, proper you know ventilation and cooling systems and or yeah, and or like uh, filters in in the uh, the room in which they're being held. 
right? And th that is something that happens way more often in the West where you'll see that facilities are squeaky clean and perfect and there's no wire spaghetti and and oh. cooling and is taking seriously and climate control and all of that. Whereas in, in China, sometimes, you know, everything is much more thrown up. Um, the, the cooling consists of these like drip coolers that just drip water uh, at one side of the of the facility and then you have big fans on the other that draw in the the now cooler but very moist air full of dust and full of water right and, uh, <laughs> did you visit the um mining facility in uh in shengdu outside of shengdu mm -hmm. you did yeah the i was just so astonished by uh even just the cord situation there <laughs> it's like how do you even like repair like how do you know what's going on with each like individual rig at this point <laughs> I know, uh, and, and you can see some of the Western miners <laughs> sort right. of just right. pulled her yeah. lip a little bit when they came in there. <laughs> <laughs> um, it was it was fascinating, and definitely, um, I, I, I like at first my thought was like, oh, maybe you know, they like you know because of seasonality, they're like moving around, right? And they just moved in, but I actually think it was towards the end of the period, right? And so they were uh, supposed mm -hmm. to be like leaving that facility. They'd spent like their six months there during the wet season. Yeah. Yeah. Right. I'm like, oh. Okay, I thought I had an explanation, but I just don't. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I mean, now it'll be very fascinating to see uh, what happens to a lot of these units. I, I think grid balancing is, you know, a potential killer use case for this if it can be done right. Um, we, we've put so many renewables on the grid in, um, in, uh, in, in a lot of the Western countries that it's putting immense pressure on the grids because of the... The, the natural variance in their production rate. So having uh, having these mining units sit near uh, renewables production centers, especially wind farms, and being able to to take off like the the peak uh, the peak production when the grid either can't handle it or it's just uneconomic or you know put in your your, your desired case. Uh, and monetize it immediately and, and sell it to where the demand is. I, I think that could be a uh, pretty yeah, interesting. That's super fascinating. That's something that I haven't yet heard of. Um, but I think that we, the space is definitely uh, ready for like an influx of like outside uh, experts in terms of like all things energy and, and like data centers and, and hardware. Um, I think that that is kind of like what's needed for like the next wave of innovation because we've made it so far already. Like if you look at, um, you know, where we are in terms of like manufacturing and efficiency, um, I noticed that in the report you'd said like we've gone from like an 18 month uh, depreciation schedule to like 30 month, like meaning like hardware efficiency is like steadily increasing so that you're able to make more money for a longer period of time and it's also more efficient. Um, but that's super interesting. Like we're basically now at the same pace um, like we caught up and innovated far enough to where like we're at the same pace, at least on the chip side, um, as the rest of the industry. Like we've got chips that they're using in, you know, like iPhones and tablets and whatnot. So um, mm -hmm. we need to to think of other areas in which we can innovate and bring in some experts there. Definitely. And, and this changes a lot. So when you have uh, when we're now sort of banging our head up against the, the innovation barriers that um you know, sometimes are just dictated by the laws of physics. You know, you can only get a, a mask width to be so narrow before it's on the order of a couple atoms. And, and then it, it can't really be any narrower. You can't really have a, 
a circuit that's much smaller than a few atoms in width. So when we hit this this barrier, be it temporary or not, like we don't know what's going to come in terms of future innovation in chips, but when that happens and chips sort of stagnate in their um, efficiency gains, then it drastically uh, should lower both the price of chips and it should uh, increase their lifespan. And when you get drastically longer depreciation periods, there are all sorts of business models that open up that have been impossible so far. So for example, solar mining has not really been a thing because if you only have um, power for half of the day, then you're going to get killed by depreciation. Right. So, yeah. Especially so with the it, ROI on the on sol- on most solar panels installs. Yeah. So it, it, that just has not been a thing. Um, and as soon as as soon as you can start depreciating these things over many many years, I mean, you know, what if we get to depreciation scales so like ten years or so? Then there's all sorts of things you can do uh, to make money over time, and we can integrate these things much more closely into the energy grid and unlock efficiencies there that uh, we haven't been able to tap so far. Mm-hmm. And you can play, yeah, and playing around too with like different like uh, depreciation schedules for like tax purposes and like looking at investment tax credits and whatnot. Um, so I think that gets really exciting. Agreed. Agreed. Yeah. And, and, you know, just structuring a lot of these money as the, as the mining operations get bigger and bigger. I mean, this has been a space that's been sort of dominated by enthusiasts and, you know, early sort of hardcore entrepreneurs with big risk appetites and sometimes taking balance sheet risk on, you know, holding coins and riding waves and sort of doing everything. Uh, as these companies grow, there's probably going to be less and less scope for uh, the management to be able to do that. And you're going to have to sort of structure these things more and more as uh, proper commodities companies. And the plurifer- uh, proliferation of, um, sorry, proliferation. It's a tough word. <laughs> it is a tough yeah, word. Yeah, it is a tough word. I, I, know. I know what you mean. <laughs> The proliferation of uh, uh, derivatives built for and uh, with with miners in aim is probably going to make this a lot easier. Uh, you, you need efficient hedging if you're going to be able to run this uh, like modern commodities producers run their operations today. Mm-hmm. No, certainly. Um, and it's really interesting too. Like, I think what you said about like, you know, uh, like these operations, like really honing in and like doubling down and focusing on like one thing rather than trying to do like 20 different things in the space. Um, Cause they're excited about all of them. And like, in a way I feel like that was, you know, several years ago, that was kind of their way of like hedging against risks and trying to have exposure to um, lots of different like potential um, like success areas in the market. Uh, now they're able to double down, but it's also interesting because you look at like the cost of operations um, like, I mean, going from GPUs to ASICs was huge, right? But like, we're also looking at like significantly higher capital needs uh, just for like your initial overhead costs, right? So mm-hmm. we need to find better ways to finance these operations if we want to continue expanding the operations and also for the purposes of like geographical distribution. So then I think we start looking at like kind of straying away from the traditional like equity model in the space to the more industry standard within infrastructure projects to uh, debt, like back levered debt. Completely agree. And and this is one of the things that make me optimistic on behalf of uh, Western mining is that the efficiency of Western capital markets is probably going to come in and have an effect at some point. 
um, once this industry has matured past a certain point where it's not viewed as so extremely risky in the eyes of investors, the power of, uh, of Western capital markets are probably going to lower investment costs for Western miners in particular. Yeah. This is always, this is always going to be a benefit for um, anyone conducting business in jurisdictions where there's fundamentally a rule of law and where you can have some certainty that your property will not be confiscated or be subject to arbitrary bans on part of some you know, authoritarian entity. So there's definitely a lot of efficiency to be unlocked with the financialization of, um, of, of um, mining capital. Yeah, especially when like, you know, non-endemic Western investors look at your balance sheet and they see like, oh, look at this like prime real estate. Look at this like mix of renewables that you've got going on. And they see other um, like value adds and like value propositions for what you have going on in your project aside from mining and like mining is your way to like make what you're doing profitable and like make money then sure I think that the risk appetite is is definitely there um, yeah yeah it's, it's it's just a matter of time in my opinion as as is a lot in this industry um, we, we we see this here on the investment side too is that uh, a lot of people are are of the opinion that if this just goes on for long enough and it, it, it keeps ticking uh, and it keeps working and it's just still there at some point uh, it just becomes a part of the norm. And at that point, I, I think we're going to be able to unlock quite a lot of um, investment capital. No, I totally agree on that. Also from the report, I thought, uh, you know, you have continued to, in these reports, make a really important distinction between um, the all-in ROI break-even level and the cash cost break-even level. Um, notably that miners are going to go offline when their um, like operating expenditures exceed income and then that and mining gear, mining gear becomes cash flow negative. So that's like not at the point of negative ROI. Um, but I would love for you to elaborate a little bit on this um, and kind of like where these like foundings are based and kind of how you're, how you're reaching these numbers. Yeah. So th this is something that I explored in depth in a blog post that I did, I think about a year ago. And uh, the context of this was uh, we saw the first sort of large scale mining capitulations in the post-industrial era of, of mining. And we were sort of talking about this uh, mining death spiral narrative and all of this. And I just hadn't seen, I just hadn't seen, um, just hadn't seen like a, um, a a big comprehensive take on this. People had different ways of calculating um, marginal creation cost, and then they would confuse the marginal creation cost with the capitulation cost uh, or the capitulation level. And I just felt that it, it was important to to make a distinction between the two because. You know, you can you can be ROI negative, but cash flow positive, uh, and and this is this is just very common in in all commodities producing industries, especially the ones that are very front loaded with capex, like mining or uh, oil production, uh, shipping. You know, you name it. You have to pay uh, you have to pay extremely large sums up front, and then you spend the lifetime of the asset trying to make back your investment cost plus your, you know, uh, your capital cost. And then only once you surpass that, you make a, you know, a positive return on your investment, which means that your capital is preserved and you'll be able to reinvest down the line. 
Um, but that is not what determines when miners shut their gear down. Because uh, say that you know you've built an oil rig that will give you a positive um, return on investment if oil is above a hundred dollars a barrel for say 30 years. You're not going to stop producing oil even if the the production cost, uh, sorry, the sales cost falls below a hundred. Uh, a barrel. You're only going to stop production when the sales cost per barrel is, uh, sorry, the sales price is lower than the cost uh, that you have ongoing for taking the oil out of the ground. So long as you're, uh, so long as you're at all cash flow positive, you will continue to uh, operate uh, in the hope that, you know, at, at least the cash that you're bringing in is helping towards paying back the investment cost you had initially. So miners won't shut their gear down until keeping the miner on is actually bleeding cash. That's when the shutoff cost comes. Right. So I just thought it was uh, important to, to make sure that everybody understood the, um, the distinguishing difference between uh, the two numbers. So it, it is important that the mining industry as a whole is, um, uh, is ROI positive. And and it will be. I mean, it's it's self-regulating. So the the miners that are not ROI positive over time will have their capital destroyed, and they won't be able to reinvest. But it's not. We won't see capitulations until the um, the cash flow break even is below the price. That's when miners get plugged out uh, because you are effectively losing money. You're losing cash. You're bleeding cash just by having the units turned off. Right. Like when you're operating costs, like let's just say for a you know standard small business, like your rent and the cost of employees and producing your product are higher than the cost at which you can sell your product and the demand for your product. Like certainly, like it doesn't make sense. Like you've got a business model and you've got, despite the fact you have like upfront investments and upfront capital poured into this business, uh, like you're continuing to lose money as you go. So there's not a clear path forward to profitability, which in, in which case, right, it just doesn't make sense to continue operating. Right. And, and especially when your operation is not debt financed, if it is debt financed, then your, you know, this changes the calculation a bit because then your upfront cost is borne by someone else and your ongoing cost includes uh, paying back your, uh, your debt plus interest. And right. that can actually cause you to have to uh, shut down your operation um, and become insolvent at a, at a much earlier point. But debt financing, uh, especially on you know stringent commercial terms, is just not something that we've seen uh, be very common in this industry. It's it's very often private equity uh, done up front, and uh, it, it it makes you less sensitive to these things. And you you know your your cash flow break even is essentially your electricity cost and your uh, um, and your overhead and even overhead can probably be deferred for like a certain amount of time. So, right. That's a really good point because like when you think about bringing debt into the industry and like, you know, how it could really help push expansion forward at the same time, like we are in need of much greater stability in the space before I think that we're able to bring, uh, before debt becomes an option. Right. And there, there just needs to be more information out there too. I mean, before any regular institution is probably 
we're going to be comfortable debt financing this. They, they got to know with at least some certainty, like where on the cost curve is, does this operation sit? And, you know, what are the risks of drastically cheaper electricity popping up somewhere else? And, and all of a sudden you get booted to the high end of the cost curve. Um, it's, it's a pretty difficult uh, risk management calculation to do for so debt issuers at this point. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's hard. And then this part of what we're you know trying to do here is just increase the visibility on the space as a whole so that there's at least some, uh, you know, if some pretty consistent and continuous uh, information outputs that you can look to. Uh, to sort of build your picture of where you need to um, to look at risks. So I'm curious to know of um, some of the numbers that you that you mentioned. Like when, uh, so you say that the all-in ROI break-even is 6,100 in this report, roughly, and then uh, that the like more or less. Um, the level at which we would reach minor capitulation would be somewhere below the $2,500 mark, right? Yeah. So, what, uh, no, the, uh, sorry, the, the cash flow break even. So, the twenty-four, the $2,500 mark, that would be for like a brand new unit. Okay, so gotcha. If, if you look at the, this is the reason why we put this in table form, right? Because just calling out one number here is, it's not that useful because it's such a wide market and conditions are so different that uh, I always find it better to present the results in such a way that you can, you can look at a table and find the cross point between either an operation that you're looking into, or maybe if you don't agree with our assumptions. So our assumptions now is that the, the center uh, level for uh, for mining electricity costs is around four cents, but I know there's disagreement on that. Other people think it's five, other people think it's six. Um, and then there's the question of depreciation schedule. If you're looking at like a certain mining operation, you might know that they have only the, you know, brand spanking is new gear and they can probably depreciate this over at least four years then you'd go all the way to the left of the table. Then you know that they're mining at three cents. And you also happen to know that they paid 25% less than the average miner for their CapEx. Then you select your, your right table. Then you go to the right uh, square in the table and you find that their cost uh, would be 4,000 for uh, uh, current ROI uh, break-even levels. And so for cash flow. Uh, there's no depreciation schedule involved, right? Mm-hmm. What we have there is that we do the electricity OPEX against the overhead, uh, the additional cooling and other OPEX. So say that you know that someone is mining on three cents and their overhead is about um, 10%, then you can look in the table and you can see that their cash flow breaking in level is likely around 2,800. If, but, and again, the, the, the issue here is that that is market average, um, gear and right now there's a bit of a bifurcation between the two generations of gear right so our average sits right in the middle which is you know kind of kind of neither not one nor the other uh which is why in the uh that's why in the the key takeaways i included some more 
they're more back of the envelope calculations for cash flow break-evens for newer generation and older generation, just to show that there's a bit of a difference. So, you know, the, the 16 nanometer generation would capitulate, um, what was it around five and a half, uh, at four cents. Um, so good you know, memory. <laughs> yeah. At, at even higher levels at five and six cents. So it shows that, you know, if you're running those units, then you're either running them on very cheap electricity, uh, or they're about to be obsolete. So, um, you know, the re reading through uh, reading through the results in the table form gives you uh, a, a bit of an interesting insight to how the conditions uh, being different between different miners can result in completely different both ROI breaking wind levels and cash flow breaking wind levels. So I'm also curious to know, um, kind of like thinking about older models and, and profitability and like some of them potentially being forced to go offline um, after the happening and, and just, you know, through these swings and, and lower uh, rewards. What, um, if you were thinking about like the increase in um, the hash rate, right? So like we went from, um, it increased like 90%, I believe. Uh, and then you also look at like where the majority of the concentration of um, like estimate, like uh, where your basis was for the majority of this um, new hash rate that was uh, brought onto the network uh, was in China, right? So I'm curious to know if, if we think about it that way and kind of like where that distribution was and assuming that the majority of that hash rate was uh, brought on from new equipment, um, how do you think the happening is going to affect uh, the hash rate? Like just knowing that some of these older uh, machines are going to be going offline. Uh, we also, I think, have kind of that strong hedge there uh, in, in China having all this, this new hash rate brought on from new equipment. Yeah. Yeah. The, the, the question of impact from the halving is it's always uh, completely muddled by the price, you know, you got to make a price prediction. Right. So if, if the price stays exactly where it is today, you know, you could expect a 50% drawdown in the hash rate. Um, you know, assuming that the network is currently mining right at the margin, which they probably are. So all things being equal, uh, the having could boot off, you know, almost all of the previous generation hardware, um, except those few cases where you're mining at, you know, one, one point something cents. Um, but if the price recovers, you know, all it takes is doubling of the price and then uh, conditions are exactly as they were before. So it's really, really hard to make predictions uh, without having to bring out your price crystal ball, which is always a bit of a hornet's Yeah, I'm not really a big fan of price predictions in general. Yeah. Like I think within a $20,000 window, maybe, but <laughs> outside of yeah. that, I just think that, you know, it's, yeah. It's, it, yeah, it, it's guesswork, right? So mm -hmm. you would think that all things else being equal, um, a reduction in supply of 50% overnight, uh, if, if demand stays the same, should have a positive impact on, on the price as a whole. But then you got to look at uh, persistent mining selling pressure in the context of uh, old school, you know, holder selling pressure, uh, which could dwarf that. Uh, at least over certain stretches of time. So it becomes a very, very complex uh, equation. Um, no, it, it, yeah, it's, it certainly does. And I think that's one of the difficulties of, of, of this space is the 
there is just the the future is one large unknown in, in many cases. Like even if you believe in in Bitcoin and it's like long term sustainability, um, five months down the road there could be factors which nobody in the space could have forecasted that um, kind of just really shake things up. So definitely, yeah. but you know the the positive thing is that what we do know is that the miners seem to have very strong faith in this uh, and. You don't even have to. You don't even have to consider their their words or opinion or anything. You can just look at their actions, and their actions show that they've invested billions of dollars um, into the network on the you know belief that this is going to remain a strong um, cash generating business for the foreseeable future, at least for several years. Um, coming or they won't make their investment back on this current generation of gear. No, absolutely. Um, I think that that speaks really, really strongly and uh, positively for the, the space at large as well. Um, yeah. I would be remiss not to at least uh, briefly touch on uh, energy mix and consumption and Bitcoin mining, uh, just because you've been one of the pioneers helping to shed light on these mis- misconceptions. Um, I would be curious to just hear a little bit more, and I know I've, I've definitely seen some fantastic presentations from you about um, some of the misconceptions specifically in China and, and at large. Um, and I think one of the important clarifying uh, like um, clarifications that you've made is that miners are relying on renewables because these incentives align, right? The renewable energy tends to be uh, stranded in many cases, um, like you mentioned in the case of Norway, um, and that tends to make it significantly cheaper because there is really no option to um, transmit it super long distances. Um, I would be curious to hear like what some of the um, like what these findings uh, like how they might impact uh, or how you believe that they'll impact like accelerating accelerating larger renewables penetration globally, um, and then kind of like focusing in a little bit on, on China. I know that China is making a huge push towards um, renewables and I think they're, they're leading us in terms of, uh, you know, renewable uh, energy that they're adding to the grid. Yeah. I, I think this could have a very significant impact on helping the, the profitability of renewables projects. Um, as we've mentioned a lot of times renewables have this very peculiar drawback in that they kind of have to be built where the the natural resource is. Um, that's the, the extremely flexible and beneficial thing about uh, fossil fuels is that you can transport them from A to B and then generate the energy on the spot. And during transport, they don't lose um, any of their uh, energetic content. Whereas if you transport electricity across a grid, you do lose a lot of the content. Um, so being able to now focus more on um, where can we get the most electricity for, um, for our money, if you will, uh, and being able to build renewables projects where the, the wind blows the strongest or where the biggest river is and having this sort of extremely mobile cornerstone uh, industrial demand being able to follow it wherever it goes and 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 take off um, a bunch of the production up to a certain price level uh, is, is a pretty interesting new development so bitcoin essentially becomes uh, um, an energy uh, consumer of global last resort 
it will buy any energy below a certain price. Um, that is pretty cool. So if, and again, this comes back to what we were saying earlier, uh, if this space just gets to mature enough and get to get to a point where people are more comfortable with it. Uh, what we hope to see is uh, using mining as an integral part of the financing models of, uh, of a lot of these projects. Uh, there are some pioneer projects that are looking into this already. Um, and I, I always talk about Soluna as an example. Mm -hmm. uh, hopefully they get off the ground at some point. Uh, but, you know, they've pinpointed this extremely windy spot on the uh, western coast of Africa uh, where you can get, you know, over twice the, uh, the production efficiency of uh, the average global windmill. Uh, and the, the big question is, is offtake, you know. Uh, so you, you, have, you have this nearby town uh, that is still small. Uh, relies on diesel generation and electricity uh, costs is extremely high. Um, but going in there and building this multi-gigawatt uh, wind park is total overkill for the city. So uh, you you need someone to uh, to take off the electricity while either the city grows or you know industry like traditional industry moves in and. The natural uh, immediate offtaker for that are Bitcoin miners who can pretty much show up uh, immediately, don't need much infrastructure other than an internet connection and either a road or you know some way to to get the miners there. And th this type of uh, this type of mining as an integral part of the financing model could really help unlock a lot of. Uh, renewables projects that are currently deemed uneconomical uh, due to distance to demand centers or um, just grid connections that would be too expensive to to uh, to justify the investment at, at least uh, under current legacy conditions. So th this is this is what we're hoping to see. We don't know if that's going to materialize, obviously, but uh, we're seeing sort of a budding interest in this type of uh, in this type of financing models. I mean, you have uh, you have projects in Texas now that uh, are uh, building wind farms using miners as immediate offtakers. So we're seeing some budding signs. It's we don't want to get too caught up in the optimism, but it could really become um, an important. Uh, an important puzzle piece in the renewables development of the future, not to mention uh, the grid integration, uh, which is extremely important when, uh, when, when considering renewables um, being added to grids that we've built for constant or steady state uh, electricity production. And the grids are, are fine tuned to be able to handle you know the the maximum offtake that um, that our society demands, and you know here in comes renewables with their pretty uh, you know un unconsistent production cycle. You know sometimes the wind is blowing really hard, or the sun is you know really roasting everything, and then our grids essentially can't handle this because uh, you know we we have we have some of these other power plants that are constantly running like our nuclear nuclear plants that can't even be shut off um, on a time frame less than you know weeks so 
all of a sudden we have this challenge where we either we either have to spend a ton of money uh, building a grid that has a large excess capacity to be able to take these like peaks in production, which is a very expensive thing. And and you know all of a sudden the the electricity cost for the end consumer is is bumped up. Uh, you know, substantially, and, and it makes renewables perversely unpopular. Uh, we're, we're seeing this in, in Denmark and uh, in Germany in particular, where you've had huge wind developments happen. And uh, you, you have conditions sometimes where um, the the wind generation is, is essentially producing more electricity than, uh, than the grid can handle, and people are paid to take it off their hands. So... Being able to integrate mining into this to sit and um, selectively be able to take this load off of the grid whenever production is the highest, which is also when price is the lowest, and monetize it immediately. That's a huge opportunity. So, you know, no, this is space to watch. Interesting. Like, even if, I mean, it would probably there would be a lot of factors going in this into this for it to be profitable. But like even, you know, the um, like the shift in operational hours of like, if there's solely operational um, overnight, right? Like when there's like the cost is significantly lower. Um, I think that could be an interesting use case as well, but yeah, definitely probably closer to cities. And, you know, it comes back to what we were discussing earlier uh, in the, in stretching the depreciation schedule for the hardware. So if you can, uh, if you can either get, or essentially lowering the ongoing CapEx cost of the production cost, like the the CapEx factor of the production cost, if that is as low at, you know, if you can minimize that, then you enable all of these new interesting business models. Certainly. Um, You know, I had a friend who, uh, he's a miner in Texas, actually. he was visiting earlier this week. And so they actually built their own grid for that very reason. Like it just made more sense for them to build out their own grid. Um, And he's been telling me that they're adding an additional eight gigawatts of wind energy to the grid, despite the fact that there is uh, mostly nowhere for it to go, uh, but it's still profitable. So people still have incentives to create these massive wind farms. Um, And they even have uh, the turbines are built um, higher than the standard, I think it's like 140 foot um, tall winter uh, wind turbines, so that uh, they can access higher wind speeds at higher altitudes and in, in the upper atmosphere. So um, I just find it fascinating because when you think about that and like, well, that's significantly more production. That's a ton of energy, eight gigawatts. Um, yeah, that's more than the entire network. Right. Yeah. That it's just insane. Um, so I'm very curious to see what will happen with that energy in the next two years. So. You got to love Texas, though. Right, man. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like at some point they're just going to be their own nation over there. They have their own way of doing things. They arguably should. And they have their own grid, too, actually, in the United States. Right, yeah. One out of of four grids is the Texas grid. So, (laughs) yep. Uh, Yeah, but I mean, that's kind of what happens when you just let business do what business wants to do. Uh, You get this massive investment and it's driving down electricity costs for everyone, which increases prosperity. Like what's not to like about it? Absolutely. Um, I've like long been a believer that if um, we're going to have factories in the, in North America and they happen to be in the United States, that they will be along the border uh, taking advantage of uh, the really nice tax advantages that we've got and still have even with the new mm-hmm. NATO or the new NAFTA. 
yeah, I, I, I haven't had the chance to look into the details of the new NAFTA. So not much change really only mostly affects automobile industry. So, um, okay. it's interesting though. Yeah. Well, uh, thank yeah, you. I mean, electricity cost is key. Yeah, it, it definitely is. Um, and I think the people that see that are, are really pushing towards renewables and, and really lowering that cost, which is interesting because I don't think that like standard infrastructure industries, like maybe it's because they have, they found ways to be profitable and to like finance it and have depreciation, like significantly longer depreciation schedules that they're not, at least in my opinion, they don't seem to be as concerned about the cost of electricity, at least in the way that miners are like scurrying to get like sub one cent and like really hustling to, to make that happen. Um, I haven't really seen that in the, the traditional infrastructure space. Yeah, I mean, if, if you have a business model that functions and you've, you've hedged your exposure to whatever risks you might have and you know that any competition coming in would require a huge investment that is probably not forthcoming uh, unless there's a big increase in market demand, then, yeah, I mean, why do you care? No, totally. Um, well, do you have any, uh, any parting thoughts that you would like to share, um, perhaps from the new, new report? I think we've covered uh, most of it, to be yeah. honest. So I really appreciate you having me on. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate you joining me today, especially with, uh, you towards the tail end of your illness. Um, <laughs> and the, yeah. And, and heading into the holidays as well. Uh, Chris, where can we find you and CoinShares on social media and on the internet? Uh, you can find us on uh, Medium, um, on under CoinShares, and you know me uh, personally, just under uh, Chris Bendixson. And uh, you can find us on Twitter under at CoinSharesCo, or my personal Twitter, which is at C underscore Bendixson. Awesome. Um, and you can find me on Twitter at, at BitcoinCast, um, and follow the show at, at What's Happening. And of course, be sure to subscribe to What's Happening and stay up to date with the latest mining podcasts. Uh, Chris, thanks once again for joining me. I really appreciate it and uh, really excited to uh, get this episode out to the public. All right. My pleasure. Thanks. Thanks to all my listeners out there for tuning in to today's episode of What's Happening. The What's Happening podcast is a BTC media produced podcast on the Let's Talk Bitcoin network. It was produced and edited by Christian Kroles. You can find more podcasts covering Bitcoin on the Let's Talk Bitcoin network and can follow them on Twitter at the LTB network for all the latest episodes. The following content is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any such information or other material as legal, tax, investment, financial, or other advice. Nothing contained in this presentation constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer by BTC Media, the Let's Talk Bitcoin Network, or any third-party service provider to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments. (laughs) 